0: Welcome to season three of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. More history, more people, more of the stuff that got you here in the first place. Thanks for listening. One, two, three, jump. From the Couch Podcast, Kyle, your host. Oh my good God, we are back again. Um, as the Backstreet boys would say, and as I would say, it's been uh, quite a while. I kind of took a unofficial and unannounced hiatus for a while, just wasn't really uh wasn't really feeling it and couldn't really think of much. It was just the you know, holidays, all that stuff kind of coalescing into a perfect storm of non action. Um If you want more information on the break, I did do kind of a mini 20-minute sort of talking episode. Um, It's the latest one in the feed. Um, You can just go back to listen to that one and see and, you know, not really see but hear my thoughts on what had been going on at the time and why I hadn't uh, produced any new episodes. But today, you do have a new episode. You finally have a new episode to listen to. Uh, Finally found a little motivation, uh, hooked up my new audio interface. It's all working. Uh, just fine and dandy, and I decided to test her out a little bit, uh, take her for a test ride, so to speak, and today's episode is going to be kind of a nice little simplistic, uh, reasonably short, I think, episode uh, about something we all have probably seen or at least heard at least one time in our life, but it'll be kind of fun to talk about, the Hindenburg disaster. Oh, the humanity, you might remember. Um, black and white real footage of um, a, a burning disaster uh, rigid airship, they're called, or a zeppelin, uh, the t- particular brand, kind of like Kleenexes and tissues. Uh, they're actually just, you know, called, you know, tissues or facial tissues or whatever you want to call them, but we all call them Kleenexes because that's the most popular brand. Same with bandages being called band-aids and all that kind of stuff. A lot of these rigid airships is what they're properly called. We're all called zeppelins at the time, and one of the most famous zeppelins that anybody could ever remember was the Hindenburg and we all kind of know how that ended but let's go back in time and talk a little bit about Zeppelin's these rigid airships and have a fun little return episode guys episode number 53 yes we're still in season three of the knowledge from the couch podcast 53 the Hindenburg disaster guys stick with me So, the Hindenburg disaster. Now, of course, as you are well aware, if you are a listener of this show on a regular basis, and if you're not, go ahead and go back and listen to a whole bunch of episodes. I got hours and hours and hours and hours of content for you to listen to, but if you are a regular listener to the show, then you understand that I always say context is king, and I like to lay down a little groundwork before we really talk about the Hindenburg in general. We need to talk about The concept of the airship. Now, uh, mankind uh, uh, never, never was meant, you know, in terms of natural ability to fly. We don't have uh, hollow bones. We don't have wings. uh, We don't have any of the natural stuff that comes to some species of animal on this earth that allows them to fly without really any sort of effort whatsoever Um, Whereas if we jump off of a height and try to fly, we just tend to fall um, via gravity and eventually die when we hit the ground, depending on, I suppose, on how far of a fall it is. But human beings on the outside were never meant to fly. But unfortunately, I guess for us and maybe for a whole bunch of other beings as well, humans are ultra curious and they look in the sky and they see these animals flying around. And all they want to do is get up there and also fly, even if it means they have to beat the air in a submission or some other goddamn thing in order to get up there and make it happen. So throughout history, humans have always tried to figure out some way, somehow, that they could harness you know, the wind or something, uh, some sort of force to finally figure out, hey, how can we get up there? How can we be in the sky? We're meant to be on the ground. But screw that. I want to go up and be in the air. And one of the first real um, effective ways that humans were able to get up in the air was in the form of these airships. Now, uh, the hot air balloon itself and, and other sort of, you know, sort of not very high Kind of balloons that would maybe scout like battlefields in the uh, 1850s and 60s and so forth were really the first kind of thing that was you know sort of risen into the air that people were in, but they didn't really fly any other direction. They just sort of floated there, and then they could come down. And you know if there was wind, it might push it this way or that way. But uh, the the rigid airship, the dirigible, uh, was the first real thing that came around where humans figured out, hey. We could fill this thing up with a whole bunch of super light gas and then just like put a propeller on it. I mean, propellers had been around, um, powering steamships and other things, you know, of that nature on the water and even some sort of steam engines, you know, on, on ground when in, in terms of, um, locomotives and other things. There have been engines, obviously, propelling other different things around on the ground before there was the automobile. So it wasn't a, um, It wasn't a foregone conclusion that, you know, it's like, well, we lift something in the air, then what are we going to do with it? There was always like this idea that, hey, if we can lift something in the air, then we can just use an engine to push that thing and we can go somewhere as if we were, you know, sailing on the ocean, but we won't have to deal with, you know, the ground and the ocean in any way. We can just be up in the air and push ourselves wherever we go and we end up going there. So human beings eventually figure out that, hey. Oxygen and nitrogen, which are the main two gases that exist in the air, while being fairly light, um, obviously, if you're going to fill something with a gas that's going to rise, it has to be a gas that is lighter than those two or lighter than air. And if you fill like like hot air balloons today, basically use air but it's heated so heat rises obviously but in terms of something that's actually going to stay up there without you know having to constantly blast a fire into it and use fuel in that way um humans had to find something that was lighter than air that they could fill up put into you know some sort of container the container being like the airship at this time and let it rise because the gas that was inside of it is lighter than the air that surrounds it kind of like you know something in water where if it's If it's buoyant in some way, then it's not going to sink. It's going to float. Kind of the same concept when it comes to to air travel. We're going to find something light. It rises up. Uh, Nitrogen and oxygen are number, I believe, seven and eight on the periodic table right next to each other. And that means there's only uh, six elements lighter than those two elements. So not too many to choose from. But the main two... That exists very much in uh, gaseous form before you get to that point, were hydrogen and helium. Number one on the board, hydrogen. Number two on the board, helium. Hydrogen, the the very first element, the most abundant element in the entire universe. Literally, hydrogen is everywhere. Um, it's attached to everything. And it's just, it's easy to find. I mean, water, H2O. There are two hydrogen atoms per oxygen atom in water. It is everywhere. Um, hydrocarbons, you know, with carbon attached to a whole bunch of hydrogens on it. Like those, it's everywhere. Natural gas, uh, oil, all this stuff. Hydrogen is just literally, literally everywhere. Stars are constantly smashing hydrogens together to create energy and helium, by the way, but energy that, you know, it is it, it just it's a constant constant thing and there are billions and billions and billions and billions and trillions of stars in the universe all filled with hydrogen all doing this at all times all around you. So hydrogen is really 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 common and easy to find. Helium, the second um really kind of lighter than air gas that is pretty good at this sort of thing um is a lot harder to find. It's a lot more rare than hydrogen. You wouldn't think that would be the case. And in the universe, you know, uh, the cosmic scale, if you're going around everywhere, helium is really easy to find, too. I mean, like I was saying, when a star smashes two hydrogens together, you get a helium. There's a ton of helium in, in even our own star. Um, but in terms of finding uh, helium here on Earth, it's a lot rarer. It's a lot tougher to find. And it's less, it, it, it's, it's less reactive and it's a teeny bit heavier than hydrogen. Obviously, it's number two on the periodic table. Hydrogen is just um, a proton and an electron flying around there trying to find a buddy to be with. Hydrogen is two, and it is stable. It is a noble gas. It is just chilling like, hey, buddy, I'm fine. I don't need to do anything. This is kind of the conundrum and the quandary that we're going to talk about a little later on, but because hydrogen is, is so easy to find, guess what? we decided to fill all these rigid airships with. Ding, ding. If you guessed hydrogen, which i have just been talking about for like three straight minutes, you would be 100% correct. Hydrogen is easy to find, and it's everywhere. It's cheap. It's just, it's light as hell. It's super good. So what these people started to... um Design in the late 1800s into the early 1900s, even before the uh, the the airplane was designed by the Wright brothers, and then obviously improved upon by by uh, umpteen thousands of people um, up to the modern day. In the late 1800s into the uh, early 1900s, people had found that if you create this large framework, and I mean large, like two football fields long, large sort of cylindrical, you know, kind of looks like a cigar type of metal or cloth framework, depending on who was building it at the time, you would build this long uh, cigar-shaped thing, and it would have a frame, it's not like it was just like a balloon that you blow up, and boop, here we go, it would have a frame, and on the inside of this frame, you would have all these bags, these giant bags, that you would fill up with hydrogen, and then you would place these bags, um, like, back to back to back to back, uh, all the way up and down. The entire uh, airship, the entire dirigible would have these separate compartments with a gigantic bag of hydrogen. And then on the bottom side, you would have, you know, some some uh, compartments where people could be and engines would basically be, like you said, strapped on in um, the fuel on those, you know, basically there to use propellers to push um, push these ships through the air. Um, and it was a really great idea. I mean it worked uh it worked uh amazingly successfully well. uh these things were would just get right up there and they would fly around and it was kind of amazing that humans, even before the Wright brothers had figured out you know um how to use wings to create you know lift as you moved through the air that people were just like, yeah, we found out this other idea where we just fill this thing with a bunch of light gas and it just goes up and we can sort of control the rise and, you know, the the not rise of it as we, like, you know, uh, control the amounts inside of the those giant bags and we can fly this thing around anywhere and we can do all kinds of cool shit with these airships. So airships have this massive... um this massive boom in popularity um, towards the the beginning of World War One, because at this point, the airplane was just nothing. I mean, the Wright brothers took a, a flight that was just, you know, 90 seconds long. It was super short, um, barely got off the ground, but flew around a little bit. And even up to this point, the, the airplane, which was, you know, continually being developed, because obviously it was a great idea, was still... Pretty early in its development, and really not all that great. I mean, those airplanes were usually patchwork things thrown together. They didn't have um, the the ability really to have pressurized cabins. So these dudes were just literally out in the elements. Meaning you couldn't fly these airplanes very high because the the it's it's just the same as if you were climbing a mountain. You know, you, the higher you go up in the atmosphere, the lower the pressure of air. And particular oxygen is, and the human body just can't take it. You know, it's it's not just um, the coldness of that height. Obviously, the farther away you get from the ground, the colder and colder it gets as you rise into the atmosphere. But the less pressure of oxygen there is, the the less able your body is to you know acclimate and and take this in. So really, at this point, anything above like ten thousand feet for a human up in the air was really really difficult. It was it was tough. So airplanes still were kind of like, well, we're starting to try to figure this out. But airships had already been around for years before this and were used, at least at first, to um to great effect during World War One. Um, in particular, the uh the country that made the most effect of these dirigibles was Germany during the first world war. Uh they figured out that, hey, if we just, you know, build these Zeppelins, we send them up into the air. We strap a whole bunch of bombs to them, or we you know, have the compartment filled with bombs that people are going to drop out of them when we get over there. We can just send these things right over the sea, over to Great Britain, and we can just bop, 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 drop bombs and then bop, head our way back. And they can't do anything to us. And these things are super quiet. They're hard to, to really detect. Inter- like, planes are loud, you know, just buzzing around like crazy. But these Zeppelins really aren't all that loud. It's just an airship, you know, filled with hydrogen and 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 you know propellers might make some noise, but not to compare it to the airplanes these These things could be a little bit higher. They just kind of came real slow uh in the air. And all of a sudden, hey, there's this thing here, and it's dropping bombs on us. holy shit. The Germans made great use of of the zeppelin during this time. This is also when, of course, we figured out that the zeppelin had one super bad Achilles heel like one super stupid just self-destruct button that people quickly figured out that this was a bad idea but never really stopped doing the whole airship thing for a little while longer who knows why obviously it's probably more of a, a question of technology and stuff uh as the years move on but when uh, these zeppelins would be going around, uh, zeppelins were used not just to bomb different places, like I was just saying, but also used for reconnaissance. You could, um, you could send a zeppelin up high and just kind of, you know, lazily mow yourself over in the enemy territory. Um, you could take, you know, crude photographs, pictures. You could report, uh, troop movements, you know, artillery, uh, uh heavy armored vehicles, you know, stuff like that. You could, you could, you could call out. What everything looked like from the air, and and then transmit that information to people who are on the ground, or you know send information back to the the headquarters where people could do their strategic planning when it came to war. Um, so you know besides being used to just drop stuff on people, uh, zeppelins were also used greatly to help battlefield reconnaissance. They were so effective at first that people would freak the fuck out. I mean, the British were like, "What the hell?" are we going to do about this situation? We can't just let them keep sending these Zeppelins over and just dropping shit on us and walking away with it. You know, fighter planes and other planes were used at first to very minimal effect to try to really um, deal with these Zeppelins until they figured out, interestingly enough, that hydrogen, like I was talking about, hydrogen only has one little electron spinning around that itty-bitty little atom, one little electron. Its outer shell isn't full. To have a full outer shell, you have to have, at that first level, two electrons. Helium has two electrons. That's why it's chill. Its outer shell is filled. It doesn't want to react. That's why noble gases are dope to use for stuff um, like industrial applications, you know, where you need a whole bunch of, a, of a, a type of gas. But those gases are not very reactive. They They don't seek out, you know, other partners to, you know, create something different. They just kind of hang out on their own. They are very non-reactive. Helium is the first of the noble gases, and it's very non-reactive. It doesn't, I mean, you could you could take just a whole bunch of helium, fill your room with helium, uh, spark up a lighter, and the lighter might not even be able to actually light up, because helium is just not a good source of of energy when it comes to that stuff. Hydrogen, on the other hand, wants to just be everybody's friend, everybody's buddy. That's why hydrogen is in so many different compounds, because a lot of different compounds, like I say, they have um they have electron shells that want somebody to come in and hang out with them. And hydrogen's like, I got one, buddy. Boom, I'm coming in. And another hydrogen's like, sweet. I'm coming in too. That's how water's made. Two hydrogens come in with an uh with an oxygen. Boom, water happens. Same with those hydrocarbons. Same with everything. These hydrogens are everywhere and they are willing to bond with anything anywhere at any time. And when and when a um Hydrogen atom or any atom, when any two atoms come together in that way, part of the reaction is a small amount of energy is produced or heat in any sort of way. But when they figured out that if you take incendiary rounds, so you have a gun on your plane and you fill it with these rounds that are like basically on fire when you shoot them and they burn, if you shoot these incendiary rounds into a Zeppelin, that goddamn zeppelin will fucking explode super fast like super duper quick they would just just pelt these things with these incendiary rounds and these airships would just blow up and just kill just everybody who was inside and they crash spectacularly and it was just such a such a dumb you know like almost obvious when we think back to it now self destruct button and it's like oh my god maybe we should figure out like a maybe we should figure out something to do with this whole thing But hydrogen was just so abundant and did so good at lifting these Zeppelins that it was still by far, by far the most used gas to fill these things. So they figured out, hey, if we just shoot these things with something flammable, boom, gone. Airship done. At the end of the war, so towards the end of the war, you know, less and less these Zeppelins were being effectively used because, of course— you can't effectively use these zeppelins very well when people just figured out, "Hey, I know how to blow you up now." So their use goes basically down the shitter for war purposes. But for transportation purposes, zeppelins were still a fairly popular thing. So if you're thinking about taking a transatlantic flight, so from either from the um, the Americas to Europe or vice versa, Europe to the Americas, how can you get there? Well, you can get on a ship that sails the ocean, and you might spend a couple weeks or more on the ocean um, just sailing around, um, trying to get to your destination, going maybe 15 or 20 knots at a time. That's fairly close to miles per hour, so you can just do that math in your head. A, you know, 16, 17, 1,800-mile trip between Europe and the United States would take quite a bit of time sailing at that um, at that rate notwithstanding, you know, the dangers of being on the ocean. I don't have to remind anybody who's seen the movie Titanic. Um, Obviously, that one is one of the more famous crashes, one of the more famous shipwrecks. But, you know, sailing was not without its risk. You're You're in the middle of a massive amount of water just sitting out there, and a lot of things can go wrong, and there's really not much you can do about it, not really anything out there that can save you. So... You have, you know, the thought of of having to take this super long trip on this cramped boat that's going to, you know, send you across over here and it's going to take a long time and it's just kind of annoying. You could fly, but what are you going to fly? Airplanes at this point had barely, barely reached uh, serviceable levels. Um, Transatlantic flights were being made, but just little baby ones like, you know, Charles Lindbergh by himself in a little Spirit of St. Louis prop airplane getting over from uh, the United States to Europe. I mean, that's not a commercially viable thing. One dude who is an experienced pilot going all the way across the ocean and people being like, holy shit, that's awesome. We didn't think you could do it. Like, nobody had any confidence in the ability of the airplane yet that it would be able to make that kind of trip. So, is there any other alternative? If I want to go from London or I want to go from um, Paris, you know, I would get to my seaport, and then I want to take those places. I want to go over to New York City. How can I get over there? All of a sudden, boom, there's this massive hole that is filled with the use of the, the rigid airship, the dirigible, the Zeppelin, all the words that I've been using fairly interchangeably this entire time, and I will continue to use interchangeably. This device comes in play. Now, Zeppelins aren't, that fast either. I'm not really saying that the Zeppelin is like really that much faster than a ship on the water. But think about this. You you go up and you're in this airship and it's it's propelling you, you know, towards your destination, either from Europe to the United States or back and forth. And, you know, you're not going that fast. You might be going 30, 40, maybe 50 miles an hour. Really not all that fast, but still at a decent enough pace. Probably faster than any ship that's in the sea. It's still going to take you a while to get to your destination. Maybe a matter of a week or, or more. But you're up in the air. You're getting to see the world from a different angle. Um, you know, you don't have to really deal with the the the, the 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 bad stuff that that lies around every corner while you're sailing a ship at sea. You're just kind of up above all of that. And that becomes a very, fairly popular method of transport um, transatlantically between Europe and the United States. The so Zeppelin kind of steps in and says, hey, well, we're not worth the shit war wise. And it was everybody used us for that literally ever again. But, but we could take people from here to there. And it's great. Like we don't have to rely on ships, um, we don't have to rely on building these super expensive um, ocean faring vessels that are taking people from here to there, we can just pop into the air, turn the engine on, and float our way on over to our destination. Um, It's a great idea, but in the end, it sort of becomes more of a rich person's thing because one of the disadvantages from the Zeppelin compared to, say, a sailing ship on the ocean or, you know, a powered ship, whatever whatever you're into, is that you can carry far less people than the ship can because you have to have lift. Still, you're cramming this goddamn thing full of all kinds of hydrogen, and it does a really great job of lifting, but it can only lift so much before you'd have to obviously add more and more hydrogen, and adding more hydrogen means you have to add more bags of this hydrogen, which means you may have to make the ship a lot bigger. So the capacity of what it could carry to how large these vessels were was pretty shitty, really, when it all came down to it. So the ship you know, Taking a ship across the ocean was still probably the more economical thing to do if you were not a very uh, wealthy or to-do person. Getting on a ship and sailing across the ocean was still a lot easier than hopping up in one of these Zeppelins. But rich people don't give a shit about any of that. Rich people got all kinds of cash, straight cash, homie, all the time, everywhere. And they just don't give a shit. So these people are willing to spend a bunch of extra money Go on these zeppelin flights where they would be treated to like really you know first class, very fancy hoity-toity amenities uh, uh, on the way to their destinations. Very fancy. They they are kind of it was almost like this idea of being above the earth was what these rich people wanted to do all the time. You know they are above the peasantry, above all these poor folks down in their ships, down in their land. They're just floating around in the air and they land where they land, and then ta-da, we've made it to whatever destination. That we are going to make it, so it became this fairly popular thing. And the company that was the best at um, building these particular airships was the Zeppelin company. I've been calling these things Zeppelins, just like I was saying at the intro. You know, you kind of interchangeably use a brand name for something that you know it, it's not the only thing. But Zeppelin, the German company. Now, I remember, Germans were very good at using these during World War One, and they continued to manufacture these Zeppelins into you know the precursor to World War II, um were were in love with the idea of the Zeppelin so they the Zeppelin company was the biggest company and did the most of this work um, getting these things out there and making it happen. so towards the end of the or I should say towards the middle excuse me um, the beginning to the middle of the 1930s um, you start to see in Germany, this little uh, kind of national movement going on. Now, Germany post World War I was fucked, super screwed. When the war ended, all the Allied powers were like, hey, Central Powers, you got to pay us all this goddamn money um, as terms of this armistice. You got to just give us all this money. You owe us all this shit for starting this dumbass war. Give us a bunch of money. Well, of course, these nations uh, that were forced to pay, Germany being the the largest one by far, having the most damage done to it, um, was like, okay, I guess we have to pay you off because you're telling us to. And inflation ran rampant in Germany. They couldn't really pay these debts. They're printing money. It's not worth shit anymore. And the economy is in shambles in this country that's already in shambles because of war in general. So this little movement starts to happen where uh, a fairly charismatic leader by the name of Adolf Hitler gets into power and starts making promises saying, hey, I can fix what's wrong with Germany if we just do this, this, and this. We just got to get behind each other and and make this National um, Socialist Party power, the Nazi Party, if you are unaware. And, you know, using that rhetoric of, hey, you know, the rest of Europe hates us. They, they made this happen to us, which is kind of true. I mean, they did forced Germany to do what they did, but, you know, this 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 sort of dangerous rhetoric starts to happen where, um, where Hitler's saying, yeah, this is the way we have to do it. Uh, come with me, and we'll make Germany strong again. One of the biggest ways that Germany, um, as we were coming up to uh, the mid-30s and the Olympics that were going to be held in Berlin, Germany, Nazi-occupied Germany, interestingly enough, people don't really think about that, like, pre-war Nazi Germany, but it was a huge thing, um, at the time, the airship was um, a super big thing that Germans would use and i 'm saying Germans now as Nazi Germans would use as propaganda machines sending them all over the place you know with with swastikas and 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 the everything that you can think of plastered all over the damn thing, you know, just sort of like showing, hey, this is the new Germany, this is um the new strong. Um, uh, independent Germany. We, we, we are not going to sit in the shadow of Europe anymore. We aren't everybody's whipping boy. We are this new, you know, innovative technological uh, behemoth called Germany. And look at the 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 party that's done it. It's the Nazis. So all these Zeppelins, including the Hindenburg, that we'll talk about in a second. I feel like this whole episode I made about the Hindenburg, and I'm like barely talked about it at all. But I gotta lay down the gotta lay down the groundwork. Gotta lay it down. So you have all these Zeppelins flying around with with just swastikas and Nazi shit all over them as part of propaganda that the Germans would use. I mean, they were like the only country really making these airships anymore. Obviously, they weren't the only country, but they were like the number one country making the most of these things. And the Hindenburg was no exception to this rule. It was a German uh, commercial passenger carrying Zeppelin. That um, was one of the latest in its classes. It was plastered with all this stuff. It was one of the -the top-of-the-line models when it was built. It was ready to go. Um, It could carry about 100 people or so, which isn't, like I said, a ton, but it's more than than, uh, previous uh, airships could carry. And it was, for the most part, pretty safe. Now, the shitty part about the Hindenburg situation is that like we were talking about before you have two main gases that you can really use uh to power your airships you want to you can either use hydrogen or you can use helium we've talked already at length about hydrogen it is explosive it wants to react with stuff because it's all got the one electron it is drawn to things and when you are drawn to things like that you are ultra reactive ultra 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 reactive which means you don't have to do a whole heck of a lot and Boom. Explosions. Just fucking explosions everywhere. Whereas helium is super chill. Helium's like, hey man, I don't care. Light a fire here. Hey, try to light a fire here. See how it goes, dude. And it doesn't work. Helium's great. Helium is just so hard to find, and helium sources really were super... There really weren't that many in the world at the time that the Hindenburg was being um, was being built. Initially, And everybody knew, at this point, everybody knew, hydrogen sucks for this. Hydrogen's great for lifting. It's abundant. It is easy, but it is super-duper dangerous. God, it is so dangerous. We have to start using helium for these things. We have to start, even if it means that we need to use more helium to um, produce the same amount of lift as hydrogen would produce, because hydrogen's a lot lighter than helium, so you use equal amounts of hydrogen, um, equal molar values of hydrogen and helium Hydrogen is going to win out because it's lighter. That's just the way it is. But a lot of people are like, we got to start using helium. we got to start using helium because it's not reactive. So if something happens, we're not going to blow up in this, this raging fire. We're just going to be like, oops, and it's fine. Unfortunately, even though helium was the gas of choice for the Hindenburg, people who made the Hindenburg said, hey, we want to put helium in the in these in these um these bags that you know were filled up inside of the zeppelin or they said hey we're going to use we want to use like mostly helium with like some hydrogen kind of there to help out but mostly helium instead it it just couldn't work out to him because at the time most helium was super rare relatively rare and extremely expensive as the gas was available in industrial quantities only from distillation plants at certain oil fields in the United States. Basically, the U.S. um, controlled helium at the time. I mean, we were the only ones that had it. It was like, hey, we got got some helium. You want some sweet helium? You want to make everybody sound like this? Then you got to come and buy it. And not only buy like a little bit to fill up one balloon, you got to buy like a fucking shit ton of helium. You got to come to the U.S. if you want to buy that stuff. And unfortunately, the U.S., Had uh, a ban on exporting helium under the Helium Control Act of 1927. They didn't want to export any of it. It was useful at home. They didn't want to have to export any of it because it was just, it was what it was. It, it was It was a law in 1927. The US had banned exporting helium. So the Germans building the Hindenburg could not get their hands on any helium, no matter what they wanted to do. They tried and tried and tried to convince the United States government to lift. That ban on the um, the exporting of the gas. They just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. So they were forced to re engineer the Hindenburg to use old school hydrogen for its lift. There were no other um, alternative lighter than air gases that could be used that would provide sufficient amount of lift, you know, for the size of the dirigible. Um, you know, obviously, using hydrogen was fine. It, it, it's a tried and true method of lifting these things you could carry more passengers you could carry more weight because like we said the you could use a lot you could use a lot of hydrogen to use a lot of to make a lot of stuff happen and hydrogen being as it is so light you got more bang for your buck in, in fact the most bang that you can get for your buck is from hydrogen it is the lightest thing ever so the hindenburg is made in 1931 or at least it's starting construction in 1931. Um, five years after that construction began in 1936, the Hindenburg made its first maiden test flight from the Zeppelin dockyards um, in Germany with 87 passengers and crew mixed together aboard. Um, they fly this thing around, and it goes perfectly well. It is it is successful, and nothing goes wrong at all. They lift it up, they fly it, and then they land it. Hooray! Everybody cheers. A total of uh, six. Sort of test flights were made then over a three-week period from those Zeppelin dockyards where the airship had been built. And at that point, they figured, okay, we got this thing up a whole bunch of times. We're doing a good job. I think we're ready to make a formal public debut. We're going to make a sweet-ass propaganda flight because, of course, we've got to make a propaganda flight um they were going to make a 4100 mile propaganda flight around the entirety of germany just you know, circling around the country just being in the air and they were just going to they were just going to plaster plaster this thing with nazi propaganda so swastikas everywhere uh hindenburg in a super like <laughs> evil looking script and you know just germany 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 it's all over this thing and they get into the airship and they just they fly around Uh, uh, Germany from March 26th of 1936 all the way up to March 29th. They just fly around, fly around, fly around. This is then followed by its first commercial passenger flight, which is going to be a four-day transatlantic voyage to Rio de Janeiro from Germany that departed from um, the German airspace in uh, March of this year, March 31st to be exact. Um, And then they made their flight. Um, after departing on uh, the 6th of May, later on, uh, they made 10 round-trip flights to North America from Germany in 1936, back and forth, back and forth. Everything was successful. The Hindenburg wasn't like the Titanic where it was like, hooray, first ship, let's get out here. It's your first uh, maiden voyage. Whoops, you sunk. That sucks. The Hindenburg flew around, made many, 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 many miles, many, many, many miles everywhere. And did a very good job of it to the point where it sort of became the pride of, you know, the Zeppelin fleet in Germany. And it just continued to have all that propaganda slapped on it and everybody flying around. Just look at that. Look at that airship. Look at that Nazi ingenuity flying around. Look at these guys go. I mean, it was a, it was a huge you know success in that way. As the Olympics were coming uh, to Berlin, they slapped on the Olympic rings on the Hindenburg to show, hey, you, when you come to do the Olympics in this place, you're coming, to like a, you're coming to a real spot. You're not coming to some third world piece of shit country. You're coming to Germany where we have stuff figured out. Look at our airship. Look at the Hindenburg. So, sounds great, right? 1936 passes. The Hindenburg flies around. Everything just goes well. They make a bunch of trips, 10 trips to be exact, between the United States and Germany. And seven trips are made to, um, to and from Brazil. And Germany So this thing is There's no stranger Crossing the Atlantic um, Back and forth Back and forth um, In 1936 uh, of July that, that year The Hindenburg actually completed A record Atlantic round trip flight Between Frankfurt and Lakehurst Which is in New Jersey Done in 98 hours And 28 minutes of flight time So literally 50 some hours west 45 hours east They were Way across the, they went across the ocean and back. Now, you think about these days, a transatlantic flight from, say, like New York to London takes, what, five or six hours, something like that? I mean, just, it's like supersonic compared to how long uh, a Zeppelin flight took. But think about, like like we were talking about before, these, these oceanic trips that were taking weeks to do. These dudes were doing it in, like, three days, two or three days, blasting across the Atlantic, back and forth, back and forth. Everything was looking good. The Zeppelin Company was doing well. The Hindenburg, its pride and joy in the air, was flying back and forth and making its trips no problem. And people loved the Hindenburg. It was said that the airship, while it was in the air flying, was so stable that a pen or a pencil could be balanced on the end of a table without falling. Its launches were so smooth, it says, that passengers often missed the fact that they had actually launched, believing the airship was still docked to the mooring Mass, and they were already off and running. It was a smooth, smooth operation that costed about four hundred bucks in nineteen thirties dollars, which is extremely expensive. You know, hence the reason why it was usually only rich people that were flying zeppelins around everywhere. Going every, it was kind of the stylish thing to do, right? You you were a celebrity, somebody rich. You get in the airship. You go to somewhere. It's like a red carpet thing at the end. You're like, hey, look at me, look at my rich ass and my sweet blimp that we got behind me. I came in that thing. It's dope. Look at me. I'm rich. That was the the whole thing. The whole thing that they they loved doing. In October 8th of 1936, the Hindenburg made a 10 and a half hour flight called the Millionaire's Flight, quote unquote, over New England, carrying 72 uh, wealthy and influential passengers like Winthrop Aldrich and Nelson Rockefeller. Um, you know, just Rich people city. They loved loved doing this thing during the 1936 uh, Hindenburg, you know, uh, trips as well. A uh, aluminum grand piano was placed on board in the music salon because, of course, you have to have a music salon in your Hindenburg, your 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 area. You you're you're an airship. People are paying 400 or 500 bucks a pop to get on this thing. Got to have a grand piano, right? You got to be able to entertain your guests in the most classy way possible. Everything sounds great. Everything sounds super good, but of course, of course, we all know what's going to happen. We have to talk about it. The Hindenburg's final flight, May 3rd to May 6th of 1937. After making the first South American flight of the 37 season in late March, the Hindenburg left Frankfurt for Lakehurst in New Jersey on the evening of May 3rd on its first scheduled round trip between Europe and North America that season. Hey, We did a whole bunch of good ones in 1936. Everything went well. People fucking love us. What can go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Although strong headwinds slowed the crossing that they had, the flight had otherwise proceeded routinely as it approached for a landing three days later. Pretty much what you would expect uh, the amount of time it would take for a airship to cross from Frankfurt in Europe to the east coast of the United States. The Hindenburg's arrival on the sixth of May, so three days later, was delayed for several hours to avoid a line of thunderstorms passing over Lakehurst. So they see um, over over New Jersey at this time. There's a whole bunch of thunderstorms. Cool. We're just gonna kind of sail around in circles over here. We're gonna wait till those things pass, and then once those things have finally passed, we will go ahead and make our make our landing in New Jersey like nothing ever happened, and it was gonna be awesome. Around 7 p.m. that night, the airship was finally cleared for its final approach to the Naval Air Station at Lakehurst, which it made at an altitude of about 650 feet, with Captain Max Pruss was in command of the Hindenburg at the time. At 7.21 p.m., a pair of landing lines were dropped from the nose of the ship and were grabbed hold of by ground handlers. This was typically how they, how you would land an airship. They, they, they would drop these mooring uh, ropes to a bunch of guys who were on the ground, they would all grab onto him and 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 hooked into stuff as gas was sort of let out slowly and then the descent was made and the airship would land 4 minutes later now 7:21 is when the mooring lines were thrown down and people grabbed him 4 minutes later at 7:25 the hindenburg suddenly explodes bursts into flames and just drops out of the sky in a little over half a minute so 30ish seconds from being 650 feet in the air to the ground this this giant this giant ball of flames uh all of a sudden just these guy, these guys, these ground guys grab the ropes and go, cool, we're doing this and just boom, fucking fire everywhere. And I was like, Holy shit. The Hindenburg just, it just goes nuts. And because of the Hindenburg being such a popular airship at the time, there were camera crews. There were people filming the, it's approach. I mean, that was a thing. It was newsworthy to have this, this, this very popular and, and, a uh, named airship coming into the United States. Hey, look at this thing. Let's film it. It's it's super cool. We can we can take pictures of it for the newspaper. We can roll film of the thing landing and play that in, you know in theaters and in and, and, and any other place that could play that kind of footage. And it's gonna be great. And holy shit, while we're filming this thing just exploded in the air and it goes crazy. By the time it hits the ground, you know, they're they're everybody's scrambling there were about 90-ish people on the airship. Surprisingly, after this thing hits the ground, it's ex- there's fire everywhere. I mean, this is an airship that is like two and a half football fields long. It is massive, massive. And you can imagine the fires exploding from the hydrogen that is being ignited in this airship or as big as the airship itself. So this is just a, a colossal scene of destruction. All this happens. After everything is said and done, the airship, crashes and only um, 36 passengers end up dying on this thing so many people somehow fucking got away from this I can't even believe it I, I don't understand like when I see real footage of this and I hear um, Herbert Morrison's commentary and you don't know probably who that guy is I don't know who that guy is like if I heard his name i be like I don't know who that is but the oh the humanity oh the humanity you know of the Hindenburg crashing everybody's heard that and I'll play that clip um, here in a second. But the 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 oh the humanity of the situation—that's him watching this thing happen. How in the hell did like sixty people survive this thing? I think there's some crashes and people are like running off. At, like when they hit the ground, they're like, "Bye, I'm fucking, I'm out of here." Somehow, a bunch more people than were on that ship got away, but unfortunately, some passengers. And at least one guy who was handling the mooring lines down there ended up burning to death, basically. Most of them, that was how they were killed. Not on impact. A couple people died on impact when they jumped out of the ship because it was exploding. But most of the people died being burned to death in a awful hydrogen fire. And a total of 36 lives were lost with the Hindenburg disaster. The Hindenburg disaster is one of the most famous Uh, sort of of mass casualty disasters in the world because of its media coverage, because of the way we saw it finally, you know. The Titanic was very famous because it was such a high-profile ship, but there weren't a lot of, you know, pictures or film of the actual sinking of the ship. You really only could go by, you know, the evidence found of the ship and um, people's recollections of how the ship had sunk to sort of say this is how the entire thing went down, and then you can sort of recreate it in your head. But there is no question of how the Hindenburg went down. It just, boom, fire started. And honestly, still to this day, the exact location of the initial fire, its source of ignition and the source of the fuel remains subject of debate. They can't really find exactly why the Hindenburg decided to um, explode. Some people said sabotage. That's certainly a theory. Um, One hypothesis put forth, involves a combination of a gas leak and atmospheric static conditions from, like the thunderstorm. Uh, escaping hydrogen gas would then be ignited by the you know, the spark and electricity in the air, and of course, it's hydrogen. That thing can just, boom, go up in a second. But nobody really knows exactly why it happened, but it happened fast, and it happened on camera, and it was absolutely outrageous. It was absolutely crazy. Um, listen here real quick to... Um, our main man, uh, Herbert Morrison's commentary, real quick on the Hindenburg disaster. The back motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from bursting into flames. Get this, Charlie. Get the it Charlie. It's, it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's running and bursting into flames and, and it's falling on the morning path And all the folks believe that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's just the Twenty, oh, four or five hundred feet into the sky. It's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now. And the frame is crashing to the ground. Not quite to the mooring mass. Oh, the humanity. And all the fans are feeding around. I, I can't talk, ladies and gentlemen. Just just absolutely outrageous. Just just terrible. Um, the Hindenburg crashing basically put the the nail in the coffin of an otherwise, you know, reasonably lucrative industry in in the zeppelin flight thing, um, people have decided it's not worth it. These are too dangerous. Hydrogen is too dangerous. There isn't enough helium to go around to actually make this a viable thing. So we're just gonna have to figure something else out. Luckily, by the 1930s and the 1940s, um, aircraft technology was catching up pretty quickly, and eventually, uh, stable transatlantic and, tra- and and world even international complete around the world flights were were easily made available by you know the continual technological leaps of the airplane so the loss of the Zeppelin in the air was not a huge deal these days you don't really ever see the rigid Zeppelin airship anymore you usually see kind of half rigid sort of you know the Goodyear blimp is like a a, a nice little homage to the old Zeppelins but you barely see those things they're just kind of a kind of a little novelty thing that you see in the air kind of fun. They're quiet, they're easy, they take pictures, whatever, not a big deal. That's it, you know, I mean, the Zeppelin was this humongous thing and just literally burst into flames, and that was the end of it with 36 people dying in the Hindenburg crash. Oh, the humanity, that was the end of the rigid airship, even though there is this, you know, kind of sort of cult fan following. it's It's a really cool visual, like, look at this this massive cigar shaped thing flying around. Um uh in Battlefield One, one of the most recent Battlefield games, um, the airships are a very big part of that game. Um, it, it just sort of tells you that the the idea of this massive airship is still in the 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 humanities, you know, in humanities zeitgeist, in the mind of of all of us, we still have this this division of this this massive blimp up in the air, just doing its thing up there. And it's never really gone away. So it's just kind of a cool thing to think about but I mean after the Hindenburg crashed kaput that was it that was the end of of rigid airship travel as we know it and guys that's that's all hey I did an episode everybody's happy hooray even though it felt like a a big old rambling piece of shit mess hey we did it we made an effort we made it happen guys I hope you enjoyed this episode I don't know how well it went but it's something for you if you're used to consuming content on a weekly basis here you go I'm back on the ship you can find this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found although the last time I uploaded my little discussion episode I could find it on iTunes and Google podcasts but for some reason it didn't uh, upload into Stitcher I don't really know why I'm gonna have to tinker around a little bit but if you have Apple podcasts if you have an iPhone or Google Podcasts, if you have an Android phone those are probably the two best podcast apps anyway, easy enough to find anything that you're looking for. You should be able to find the show from those places. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser or you can find the show's Twitter at The Couch Pod. You can find me on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser and you can find me on Facebook. You can find the group on Facebook. Search Knowledge From The Couch Podcast. We are hanging out over there getting stuff done. Guys, don't know what next week's going to be about, but it's going to be about something, right? So guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm glad to be back. I hope you're glad to have me back. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. The music's playing. I think it's time to get out of here. Guys, please be nice to each other. Be kind. Spay anew to your pets. And live long. And prosper. People staring at me everywhere did I go They try to judge me when they don't even know The half of my story just would only detour Cause they feel they should expose Me for all I have and all I've gained Everything I've said and all I've ever did yeah, yeah, yeah. They say they know my driveway you know I came a long way from vengeful lyrics spewing out a heartache nowadays I'm closer with my family than I ever been living in the city got a new girl and she's loving all of this got the best team chase the best dreams got a circle that I trust they talk to us about making it but I think I'm on the cusp but that ain't what it's been about, not this journey shaped who I am. They say life is what happens when you've been busy making other plans. Went international, off a of passion, oh, this the good to be alive. Looking out the window on the way home, so much went into that flight, yeah. People staring at me everywhere did I go. They try to judge me when they don't even know. The half of my story just would only to told. Cause they feel they should expose.